third Sunday of Advent. We are still two full weeks from Christmas, from all of that celebration. And for many, Christmas has already kind of leaked backwards into into our lives already. Christmas music has been on the radio since, I think, late October, if not earlier. I know like uh, our friends Aaron and Beg Nelson uh, listened to it like in September, I think. Um, uh, Decorations are up. People are celebrating at office Christmas parties and gift exchanges with friends. The retail shopping madness is in full swing, and I know our doorstep has been a steady stream of parcels coming from delivery people. And sometimes we hear churches and preachers rail against such commercialization and excessive spending and partying and reveling, and we hear the call to put the Christ back in Christmas. I have a little bit different take on things. I don't tend to think that it's the responsibility of the stores and businesses and schools and governments to represent Christ. In fact, I would be very suspicious of any other group other than maybe the church talking about Christ a lot. So I'll just put that out there. The truth of the matter is that all this joy and shopping and giving and the festivities and and the colorful house lights in the midst of darkness, the music and the eating and the excess, it might be misguided It might be a little premature, but I think it's the right impulse. I think it's the right impulse. The Christmas message is that God not only came to rescue us, but he did it in such a wonderfully humble way, such an accessible way to every human being, and such an an unexpected way that it begs for excess and joy and merriment and colored lights. So wherever we see Christmasness in the world, however commercialized or overly sentimental, we have to ask the question, why? Why is it there at all? Why is there not nothing? Why is it just not a winter solstice tradition or just darkness? One may not expect to find the answer to that question in the world, but I believe the scriptures probably give us a good answer. And this year, as a church, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark for our Advent text. And I think that Mark just might be one of the best Gospel voices to remind us who Christmas is about and tell us why all of the festivities and celebrations and colored lights are worth our while. Now, why might Mark be the best voice for our current cultural moment? Well, because Mark is stripped of all the familiar, cozy, sentimental, usual stories that we hear at this time of year. Mark has zero manger scene. No shepherds, no wise men, no angel choirs, no donkeys carrying Mary to Bethlehem. But what Mark does have is a thought-provoking way of telling the story of Jesus that is clear and concise and theologically rich and engaging. In the first week of this series, we explored the promise presented in Mark's gospel. Mark draws on the prophecies of Isaiah to Malachi and that speak of God's promise to come to the earth, to rescue the oppressed, to redeem the lost, and to bring healing to the land. That's a very cool promise I can get behind. Mark presents Jesus as the focus of that promise, and that in itself Week one of Advent is reason to celebrate with gusto during the Christmas season. 
Yeah, right? Tell it to me, Jim. Uh, so as we, as, and then the last week, on the second Sunday of Advent, we focused on making preparations for Jesus. Mark introduces us to a man named John the Baptist, who's kind of like this prophet from the old times or the Old Testament. And he calls people to repentance and to baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. We noted last week that baptism before the age of the church, like when John the Baptist was baptizing, it, it was not something that Jewish people did. Baptism at that time was reserved for non-Jewish people who wanted to convert to baptism. The fact that Jewish people were responding to John by coming out and being baptized, passing through the waters as their ancestors did, like through the waters of the Exodus, and the fact that they're being baptized in the Jordan River, the same river they passed through under Joshua's leadership to receive the land that God promised to them. All of this preparation in the wilderness is a sign that something significant was about to take place. And I think what Mark is getting at here is his readers are asking the question, could this be the fulfillment of those promises of God? Which brings us to this week's text. Is this the week that we finally, you know, turn from the prophets and turn from John and actually get to Jesus, who is the point of this whole thing? And if you look at the sermon title on your bulletin, if you happen to see that, the primacy of Jesus, it would appear that that's exactly where we're going. So let's get ready for that. And I am going to read Mark 1, 6 through 11. So I'm just kind of picking us right up in the middle of this passage. I'm expecting Jesus, and I get John. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased." All of this leading up to Jesus, we're expecting a little bit, come on Mark, get us to Jesus, and we hear more about John the Baptist. And not only do we hear about John the Baptist, we get some very specific details. He was clothed in camel's hair, he had a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. What a strange detail. This you probably hear this all the time. It might be more effective if we actually had a visual. So I would love a volunteer to come forward. Anyone want to volunteer? Drew, why don't you come up, buddy? I, I saw your sister elbow you, or we could make Emma come. Drew, come on up here. What a good sport. All right, so this is, Camel's hair, it might be a little stinky. Let's put that on you. Okay, there you go, friend. Here, let's, all right, so he had camel's hair. 
And then he had a leather belt. Here, I'm going to pre belt it. He's a Wilson, so I can do this. He's super thin. There you go, Drew. All right, leather belt. Uh, bushy beard thing. There you go. I love how the mouth is off to the side. And then I actually, you can buy edible grasshoppers on Amazon, but it wouldn't get here to the 16th. Um, but these sour gummy worms, worms are weird, right? So there's your food. And for being a good sport, you can take that to your seat. So this is a shocking character. And isn't it interesting that the Bible goes into this much detail about, un, like, he's not Jesus. Do any of you know what Abraham looked like? Or like Peter or Paul? Moses? Jesus? The only description we get of Jesus is when he's in swaddling clothes and when he's transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's glowing like lightning. We don't even know what Jesus, he's the whole point of the Bible, but yet we know what John the Baptist looks like in quite some detail. Clothing camel's hair, leather belt, bushy, hairy, and eats bugs. Thank you, Drew. You can keep that on. (laughs) I actually cut the bottom of my nose like paper cut, so be very gentle with that. Um, Let's give Drew a hand. Thank you, friends. You can keep those worms, but that actually is my belt, so I need that. Thank you, sir. All right. So why all this description of this fairly obscure character in the Bible, so detailed about what he looks like? We usually don't get people's descriptions in Scripture unless unless they have some theological or literary purpose. For example, in the Bible, if, you have, if you're a man with long hair in the Bible, typically something bad is going to happen. <laughs> um, Samson, uh, Absalom gets hair stuck in the tree, right? That's like, it's kind of a, an ancient literary device to talk about pride. So anyway, so there's a fun fact for the day. Uh, let's focus back on our text. Um, We have lots of information about John. Nothing that I know of alludes to pride in that outfit. In fact, that's quite a humbling outfit. So it must be a theological or a literary thing, okay? So remember all of those prophecies that Mark quoted. There's two of them in the first three verses of Mark 1. One of them is from the prophet Malachi. And that prophet Malachi speaks of another prophet who is going to appear to prepare, or appear to prepare the way for God before he comes in person to dwell with his people. And this prophet, says uh, Malachi, will be one like the prophet Elijah, calling the people to repentance. Okay, you with me so far? Now check this out. In 2 Kings, verse one, or 2 Kings chapter one, verse eight, we learn that the prophet Elijah was a hairy man with a leather belt girded around his waist. That's the only other place you get a description like that. And so Mark wants us to associate John with Elijah. He's preparing the way of God, preparing the way for God to come by calling people to repentance. He's speaking like a prophet. 
He's living the life of a prophet uh, on the margins, away from the mainstream, and yet speaking to the populace, the general populace, uh, the words of God. Now why all of this focus on John's clothing looking like Elijah? Because what if John's wardrobe actually told us who Jesus is? What if John's wardrobe actually told us who Jesus is? If the expected prophet, one like Elijah, was supposed to prepare the way for God himself, then what does it mean that John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah, in the look of Elijah, is preparing the way for Jesus? What is Mark trying to say? Could Jesus be the living God come to us in a most unexpected way? Well, let's find out. We already know what Mark, the author of this gospel, thinks about Jesus because in chapter one, verse one, he says, this is the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark already lays his cards on the table in the first verse. That's who he thinks Jesus is. The question is, and his whole argument throughout the book of Mark is, I want you to believe it. Don't take my word for it. So like, why would Mark believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Why? Well, We'll unpack that question actually throughout our exploration of this book in the new year. But let's just look at the text we're exploring this evening. First, John, who is again styled as a prophet of God, a position held in high esteem in Israelite culture. He speaks of one coming after him who is mightier than him. One so mighty that John the Baptist wouldn't even be worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Touching a person's foot in the ancient world, in the Jewish world, that is the job of not just a slave class person, but the lowest of the slave class person. So the great John the Baptist is not worthy to untie the sandal of this one who's coming after him. How mighty is that person? And this one coming after John wouldn't merely baptize with water, but he would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Can you think in all of the Bible, like who is the one who grants the Holy Spirit? Like in all of scripture, it's only Yahweh. It's only the living God. So whoever this one is is coming after John is able to grant the Holy Spirit or baptize in the Holy Spirit. It's either gotta, I mean, we'll, we'll suspend our judgment, but that's the point that Mark is making. John not being worthy to untie the sandals on the feet, the only one with more authority than a prophet or the prophetic voice of God is the God who gives him that voice, is the God who gives the prophet authority. It's Yahweh himself. So Mark's Christmas story reveals the utter primacy of Jesus. He's the focal point of the entire story of scripture. He's the one promised by the prophets. He's the one that John and the spirit of Elijah is preparing the way for. He's the only one authorized uh, to grant the Holy Spirit. And he's so great that John the Baptist doesn't even consider himself worthy to undo his sandals. Now, if you just take that for a moment and then let me just say this. He's even mightier than that. and He's mightier than that with a twist. He's greater because he's different from what John was expecting. He's different, this Jesus, this one coming after John, because he doesn't exercise his power like the gods and goddesses of the Greek and the Roman world. 
He doesn't even behave like John the Baptist might expect. John might be right, technically, that Jesus uh, is so mighty that John isn't worthy to untie his sandals. But John would never have imagined that Jesus would untie John's sandals. He could never imagine until it happened that this one coming after him would be the type of God who would wash the feet of his own disciples. The world wasn't ready for a God who washed the feet of his disciples, who touched lepers, who offered community to prostitutes and tax collectors and Gentiles. Oh, I mean, if they had paid attention to their Hebrew scriptures and to the Old Testament, they would have seen all kinds of stories about God reaching out to the least and the lost and the unclean and the overlooked. But we humans, in every generation, we all have a way of polishing up our view of God. We don't, I mean, if we're just honest, we don't usually like an idea of God who's too gritty, too humble, always kind of unpredictable in how he does things, like Aslan the lion. He's not a tame lion, (laughs) right? We think we want a God who's above us and unlike us and precise and measured and predictable, but what we get is Emmanuel, the with us God, as we heard earlier from the scripture reading in Matthew chapter one. We think we want another worldly God, sort of like an advanced alien who comes to to sort of help us out, but he doesn't meddle with us too much, right? That's the kind of God we think we want. But instead we get Jesus, who's born to an unwed Jewish couple in a small town in Judea. God humbles himself to meet us where we're at. The God of of ivory towers and and high ideals, that God, that God is distant. We might look up to a God like that, but we can't relate to a God like that. We can't interact with a God like that because intimacy is scary and relationships usually require change in us. But Jesus loves us too much to be just a distant ideal. He is the with us God who invites us into relationship, into love, and into transformation. This with us God comes out to the wilderness, says Mark, the gospel writer, and he receives baptism from John the Baptist. And in some gospel accounts outside of Mark's gospel, John, in that scene, actually tries to resist Jesus. He says like, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. Mark actually doesn't include any of that stuff. Jesus doesn't complain. John doesn't complain. Jesus just goes through it. He doesn't argue the point. Now, why would Jesus get baptized when baptism was to wash someone clean from repentance of sins? Jesus, all throughout scriptures, talks about him not having sinned, having been righteous, why would he do that? I think it's because this earthy, enfleshed God, now a human being, he honors his word. And his word was that he had chosen Israel to be his people, to be the ones who would draw the world together to know God personally, 
That was their vocation, their mission. But throughout the scriptures, we see that Israel, Israel consistently turned to idols in different generations. They followed other gods. And so now Yahweh is actually coming in person. And what would he do? Would he bring judgment and condemnation? No. God is faithful even when we are not. And what God does in the person of Jesus by being baptized is that Jesus, rather than judge Israel, fulfills their mission for them. He says, I will be sinless for you. I will take on that vocation. I will pass through the waters and vicariously cleanse you by being cleansed. Ah, So powerful. In this scene, we read that the very heavens were, were rent or split. Some translations sort of uh, soften this verb, saying that the heavens were opened. But the impact of the Greek verb schizo, schizo, it's, the, you know, it's where we get schizophrenia, ripped apart. Um, it, it, it means to tear, to shred apart. One commentator suggests that a, a door that is opened can be easily shut, but something that is torn asunder can't easily be put to, back together, and the image here is that the, the realm between heaven and earth is schizoed apart. It is ripped apart, shredded apart. Whatever is happening in this moment in Mark's gospel, the relationship between heaven and earth and God and human beings is forever altered. The beginning of something new is inaugurated in that moment, a new relationship between creator and creation. How does God come in this picture? Uh, Besides Jesus, he comes in the Holy Spirit descending. And the description is he descends, the Spirit descends as a dove, which is a symbol a mixed symbol in Hebrew scriptures of power, of power and peace. The dove is a symbol of new creation. To Mark's original audience, the dove would have prompted memories from scripture. Uh, And perhaps the most poignant uh, memory of the dove in scripture is the dove in the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. After God's judgment, the rain stopped and it was a dove that brought back news of new life and a new start. The dove announced that judgment was over. Well, Jesus now comes out of the waters and the sign of the dove rests on him. Through Jesus, we can now have new life and freedom from judgment. See, that connection is just so beautiful. And when Jesus comes out of the waters, the voice from heaven declares his pleasure with the Son. When the people of Israel were delivered from slavery by God out of Egypt and called to be his covenant people, do you know how God referred to his people? He said, you are my son. To the people of Israel, you are my son. And if Jesus is going through those waters of baptism, vicariously fulfilling the role of Israel in his person. God says, you are my son. Jesus is the son who is able to do what Israel could not do. He will fulfill all righteousness on the world's behalf. And and as we'll see later in the Gospel of Mark and the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, spoiler alert, uh, the son of God, God in the flesh. Consider this later reflection on the person of Jesus from the person who wrote the book of Hebrews. 
In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. End quote. Why do we pull out all the stops at Christmas? Why can we find joy in kitschy plastic reindeer lit up in the front yard or my awesome neighbor up the street has a cool Christmas Yoda? Why can that be joyful? Why all the the feasting and giving, the parties and the pageants? I mean, sure, retailers and industry, uh, you know, they're seeing maybe ways ways to make money or doing things out of a sense of nostalgia or tradition even. But for us, hearing this story, Let us consider afresh who it is that we're celebrating. Consider the primacy of Jesus who dwelt among us, the hope of nations. If the disorientation of grief and loss, depression that hits many of us this time of year, or the grief of thinking of loved ones who aren't with us during this celebratory time, Think of the love that God has for you, that he has for this community, that he has for every person you will encounter. What love he must have to so humble himself for our sakes. Consider who it is who promises to return and make all things new, to wipe away every tear, to lift up the lowly, to bring justice to our broken world, All scripture, all history, all hope points to Jesus. And he's worthy of our worship and trust. Lord, we thank you for your servant Mark, who was faithful to record your story in this way. We thank you for the way that it coincides uh, the truth with the other gospel writers and yet how it's a fresh It's a fresh word during this season. It's a fresh word in a season where there's a glut of the same old stories and the same old songs. And I pray by the power of your spirit that you would open our eyes and ears and hearts afresh to be in awe of the magnificence of Christ, not only because he is so powerful and mighty and other, but because he chose to come among us, to love us in a gritty and earthy way. Help us to trust you, Lord. Amen.